Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we continue to walk through the book of Exodus. Together, we're going to study verses 1 through 7 this morning. Uh, Verse 7 is the third commandment. Let me put you back in place of where we are. That is that God's voice is actually speaking audibly from the top of the mountain. And God's people are standing at the base of the mountain. And he says, my name is Yahweh, and I am the one who brought you out of the slavery that you endured for 400 years. And since I'm the one who forged a relationship with you, let me be very clear. Relationships are always governed by a set of rules. It's true in marriages. It's certainly true in a relationship with the Lord. First rule, God says, let me be clear. I'm the only God. I don't want you to scatter your allegiance to anyone else. Secondly, since I'm the only God, you worship me with your whole heart in the way that I tell you to worship me. And what he means by that is it's not enough for you to create sincere in sincerity in your, in your own mind and presume that that's enough in your worship of the Lord. The third instruction that he gives is the one we come to today, and that is this, honor the name of the Lord. And so let's read Exodus chapter 20. We'll begin at verse 1 and walk through verse 7. And always we remember that the Bible is God's word written. It's the only infallible rule for faith, that is what we believe, and practice, that is how we live as followers of Christ. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. O God in heaven, we ask now that you would give to your people the ears that we might hear what you would say to us, that you would instruct us by your spirit and make us ready to hear. And I ask that you would again be willing to wield in your hand a sinful, crooked stick like me in order to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Very rarely do I begin a sermon with Johnny Cash, but today I'm going to do that. If you're familiar with Johnny Cash, then you probably are acquainted with his song, a boy named Sue. Well, apparently, the last thing that Sue's dad did before he left the family was to bestow this name upon his son, which caused his son to have a pretty awful life. And so Cash says, some gal would giggle and I'd get red. Some guy would laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. It would surprise you probably to find out that that song was actually written by the children's author, Shel Silverstein. 
uh, the one who wrote Where the Sidewalk Ends. Well, the song is actually funny and odd and it's sad, kind of all at the same time. But it reminds us of an important point as we approach the third commandment. And that is that, that in human life, parents are always the one who bestow a name on a child. I suspect that Sue would tell you that that can be good or it can also be misused. But there is a kind of authority that is, that is granted in bestowing the name on a child. One pastor said, by contrast, one of the remarkable things about God is that no one ever named him. God's true name is chosen and it's revealed by God himself. So we don't tell God who he is. He tells us. God has his own naming rights, which means he has his own sovereign authority. So the creator and redeemer of Israel, of you and me, introduces himself by the name Yahweh. He is God, and his name means I am who I am. The self-sufficient, self-existent one, completely sovereign in all his ways, he is without beginning and without end. I suspect many of us come to the third commandment and we go, well, I guess if there was one commandment you could probably wipe away. It's just not that big a deal. You might look at this commandment and think somehow it's unnecessary. Well, okay, I'll just watch my mouth here and there. I'll try not to implicate God in my swearing and maybe that's enough. But from the moment we arrived at Mount Sinai, we've said that, that the laws themselves reveal something about the heart of the lawgiver. It's no accident that the Heidelberg Catechism makes reference to the fact that that blaspheming God in the civil law of Israel was punishable by death. When you read that in the book of Deuteronomy, you realize, okay, God's name is serious. It matters to him immensely. Why does he take it so seriously? It is because God's name and his character are inseparably linked. In fact, God's name is his reputation. And you know this inherently because when somebody whispers behind your back about you, it seems to you that your name has been impugned and that bothers you. However, does it bother you quite so much when the Lord's name is impugned? When someone carries his name on their lips without reverence, Because the Bible says here that this is actually an attack on on God's identity, which makes it more relevant to us than we probably at first think. So the text before us says we must honor God's name with all of life. And we'll look at three points this morning, the offense, the application, the warning. We start with the offense. For Moses, this command, I think, made more sense to him before he even got to Mount Sinai because it was Moses who met the Lord at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, now, Lord, if I go back to the people of Israel and I, and I have to tell them who you are, what should I say to them? And God said, you tell them that the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Well, God, God what if they ask me your actual name? What's his name? God says, well, Moses, you tell them, I am who I am. You say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh's name is built on the 
the Hebrew verb to be. So at the same time that he says his name, he also illustrates it right in Moses' presence. These sights and sounds of a flame that goes up from a bush and the bush is somehow never consumed, which tells us this fire is really unending. It never burns out. And then the instruction to Moses, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. And so at Mount Sinai, this looks so familiar to Moses that I suspect he knows what's going on. The same sights, the same sounds, the same fire, the same smoke, but on a much grander scale. And then a voice. And a voice that summons the people forward just as God summoned Moses, but a voice that says, stop, don't go any further. Just as God said to Moses at the burning bush. When God speaks in the third commandment, it makes sense to Moses. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. More literally, you could simply say, you shall not lift upon your lips the Lord's name to emptiness, to nothingness, to no good. You see, for those who have just been freed from the bondage of slavery, God's reputation is the majesty and the power and the authority that they have already seen in their midst. Do not treat my reputation, he says, with anything less than the deliverance that I've already given you, than the glory that it deserves. So God's name and his glory are so intimately connected that that to misuse this name frivolously is to pull his glory down to, put to a spot of common, of ordinary. It's a reduction of his majesty. Let's be clear. You can't actually take away God's glory, but you can treat it as though he is not glorious in name or reputation in majesty. You can give him much less than he deserves. Nobody ever accused me of having brushes with royalty. I've never even been to Great Britain at all. But I have to suppose that it is not appropriate to greet Queen Elizabeth II with a casual, what's up, Liz? You cannot say that to the queen because her position and her title and her name demand respect. And if that is true of an earthly queen, is it not much more true of a heavenly king? And so the offense of the third commandment is to to, to simply fail to treat God with reverence. And the God who makes himself known sees it as an offense to treat his name lightly. John Calvin says the aim and the object of this commandment is that the honor due to God may not be sullied, that we should only speak of him religiously, that is, with a, with a heart towards faith in him, and with an appropriate veneration, that's like reverence or worship of him. That is the heart of what should be maintained among us. This quickly became misunderstood by the Hebrew people. And then here's what it looked like. The name Jehovah, if you've ever heard it, arose out of a fear of overusing the name Yahweh. In Hebrew, all the 
words are written with consonants. Later, vowels were added by, by pointing in various dots and dashes in order to help people understand this is how it would have sounded. But Yahweh, through the course of time, was changed to Jehovah by altering the vowels in the holy name. Because it was thought that if you said his name slightly differently, then you wouldn't be overusing and thereby misusing his name. Does that accomplish the heart of the commandment? Not at all. Because even the Old Testament itself lists God's name as Yahweh more than 7,000 times. It's given from a loving father to his people in a way to be personal so that his children would recognize our God is, is making himself known, which commands a response. God's not concerned with the amount of times that his name is said. He's concerned that his name would be precious, not only on our lips, but also in our hearts. Because God desires that he personally would be precious to his people. Therefore, he wants us to put his name on our lips for the purposes of worship and praise, but never for dishonor. Not just here, but all of God's commands are violated really at the core by a failure to love the Lord with an undivided heart. A failure to love him as he desires to be loved, to cherish his name and therefore his being in the person and work that he has accomplished. All of this is a summons. It's a summons to love the Father who, by his own unmerited grace, has loved you first. And so the first four commands tell, tell us, this is how you are to love me personally. The next six commandments, here's how you are to love me by loving others. So when you fail to understand the, the heart of your father, you begin to view his commands as, as unnecessary or overly rigorous. Maybe a contrast with the surrounding nations around Israel would help you understand the point. The third commandment is completely unique because the pagan nations around Israel approached their false gods from a selfish heart, expecting guaranteed results with an anticipation of convenience and ease. So for them, functionality was really how you approach God, which is what made idolatry so gripping for foreign peoples. And so when it came to pagan peoples, they would create formulas say the name of God in a certain way or certain pattern, sometimes with clicks or chirps or groanings, sometimes in a sequence, all along hoping that by doing that they would make their God do what they're asking him to do. See, the heart of paganism is to get God to do what you want him to do. Yahweh says, that's not the way I work. That's not the way our relationship will work. I want you to know me. I want you to love me. And from that sense of love to call upon me in genuine faith. We take the Lord's name in vain. We take him personally in vain when we fail to love him and hold him as precious in our hearts. Taking God's name in vain is an offense 
because it treats God carelessly. We treat things carelessly that we do not really love or treasure. We must honor God's name with all of life. So the offense, now we look at the application. Uh, Before we move into the application, I need to help you recognize that Reformed scholars, when they approach the Ten Commandments, they operate on a a series of principles that help us kind of rightly understand what to do with these commands. And these principles have a long history in the interpretation of the Bible. And and the reason that that Reformed scholars have arrived at these principles is because they look at how Jesus and the New Testament scholars take the commandments. The first principle is this. You realize that no command is isolated unto itself. So this command is not only interpreted by the other commands, but it's also interpreted by everything else in the broader context of the Bible. So how was this command understood by the first audience? How was it understood in reference to other parts of the Bible? Most importantly, how did Jesus think about this command? Which is why we read Matthew chapter 5. Secondly, all the commands have both a positive and a negative application. So in one sense you say, how do I rightly obey this command? And then in a negative sense you say, okay, how do I avoid breaking this command? Thirdly, and this is where Jesus heightens the commands so clearly, they have both internal and external relationship. They apply not just to the actual words that come from your tongue, but they extend all the way to your thoughts and to your attitude of heart. That's precisely what Jesus is doing at the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you you say, don't commit adultery, I say, look at a woman with lust in your heart, and you have already committed adultery. As I said in chapter 19, when we looked at that text, Jesus isn't preaching to take away the commands. He recovers them to God's given intent. Fourthly, every command itself always represents other, comma- other sins that lie behind it. So when God says uh, in the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder, He also includes harm to the body. It forbids cutting. It forbids self-injury. It forbids suicide. It forbids fist fighting. It forbids domestic violence. What Jesus is doing is he's saying the commands are so much bigger than you would ever otherwise see. Why does Jesus do that? Nobody ever accused Jesus of being a legalist. Jesus does this in order to wipe away our self-delusion, to wipe away our depth of sin and expose it to light. And once it's exposed, it drives us to the Christ. Because it is God's will that you and I, through uh, through the instruction of the Holy Spirit, would be humbled to the point of seeing our need for Christ and running to him in faith. You cannot look at the Ten Commandments without seeing what Jesus is intending to do is draw you to himself. Here's four ways we violate the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. First, we violate this commandment when we commit perjury. Under oath, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. So help me 
God. So to lie under oath is to bring God's name to testify to the truth that you're saying, but then in fact not speak truth. God is a, is a truth teller, and his word is always trustworthy and true. So everything he speaks is, is full of truth. And so to invite him to testify to your own truth telling, if you're deliberately intending to deceive, is really to implicate him in the deception. Don't swear to God or to anything else if you intend to deceive. More than that, though, if, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your new identity is so bound up in Christ and his name that it's so much more than if you're just taking an oath. And it doesn't have to just simply be in court. As a Christian, every lie I tell is a violation of the third commandment because his name is attached to me. Acts chapter 11 tells us that it was in Antioch with the preaching of Paul and Barnabas that the followers of Christ began to be called Christians. And so later when we talk about the ninth commandment, we'll recognize that, that speaking the truth about others is what's addressed in the ninth commandment. But speaking the truth, period, says something in the third commandment about our relationship to the Father and Jesus, who is your Lord. Now, Calvin says, again, we break the third commandment not only by perjury, but when God's name is taken lightly and disrespectfully adduced in proof of frivolous and trifling matters. That's actually what brings us to our second application. There is a way to use God's name in a frivolous manner, and that's a violation of the command. Most of us are sometimes loose with our words. But the Bible says it's unloving to drag God's name into our careless speech. Now listen, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a home where nobody taught you this. Or if you grew up in a home where you thought everybody was overly legalistic about this. It is not okay to say, oh my God unless you're actually crying out to the Lord in faith, with his love, asking for his help. Likewise, the little cute initials in your text messages, OMG, it's saying the exact same thing. You should be careful also with the word G's. It's a shortening of Jesus' own name. I know people have gotten clever. They spell it with a G. That's where it came from. That is what it is. Or God Almighty. As if it's just a sigh. <sighs> on the tip of your tongue. Or a pause in your sentence. Or to say, thank God it's Friday. Unless you're genuinely giving thanks to God in prayer that it really is Friday. Some people will say, God knows I try. You wonder if you really do want the Lord, who knows everything, to bear witness to the level at which you try all day long, every day. We're frivolous. We summon the, the name of God to our tongues like we're exhaling. What about God bless America? 
I suppose that would be appropriate in a prayer. God, would you, in fact, bless this nation according to your will? But to toss it around at the end of a speech, just on the 4th of July, that's what good Americans say. All we really mean is good luck. But there's God's name. Tossed. One daily devotion that I read from Ligonier said, if the commandments enjoin the opposite of what they forbid, then this law mandates that we set apart God's name as holy. And that's the very point that Jesus makes in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Parents, I wonder if you teach your children to hallow God's name. To raise his precious name to your lips for the purposes of prayer and worship. For a posture of love towards your Father in heaven. Or are you flippant with God's name? And if you are, your children will learn to be flippant with God's name. That's where they learn it. A third way we take the Lord's name in vain is really similar to the last one. Frivolous but frivolous for the purpose of an expletive, a cussing God's name. You see, this command is teaching us that it's wrong to take God's name on our lips for the purpose of damning something. Well, let's be clear. You don't have the power to damn anything, nor do I. And I must not draw on his name as if it summons a kind of power for me to damn something. By that holy name, to condemn a thing or a person to utter separation from God. Do not take the name of the Lord your God as a swear word. Whether it's his name Jesus or God or his title Christ. Some of those are obvious. And you say, well, I've outgrown all of that a long time ago. Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 says that we are to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we might know how to answer each person. What Paul is saying is the way you speak testifies to the world about whose you are. Fourth way we take God's name in vain is by attributing to God something that he hasn't actually said. It commonly sounds something like this. The Lord has told me to do this or to do that. The the much worse way to say it is, the Lord has told me to tell you to do this or to do that. And that is, in itself, maybe it comes from a heart of going, well, I, I feel an inward sense that I should tell you this. But it's wrong to attach God's name to something that you simply think you ought to say. I heard about a college guy who told a a girl in college that God had told him to marry her. And she said, I haven't gotten the same message. Philip Ryken says God has already said whatever he needs to say in his Word. 
Of course, there are such things as as inward leadings of the Holy Spirit, but it is only an inward leading, and it should never be misrepresented as authoritative word of God. One of the most popular devotional books, thing flies off the shelves in a bookstore. It sold 40 million copies as of May 2022. This particular devotional book is written as if God is speaking to you. As if Jesus' own words are speaking to you. Now some of you are going, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. I better go home and burn my book. You don't have to do that. But I am saying that the author may be from a heart of good intentions, perhaps from a heart of hoping to make things personal for the reader, has in fact violated the third commandment. Because the only thing that we have as the authoritative word of God is the authoritative word of God. It's the Bible. And this is plenty. Jesus does not have to whisper to you or call to you from the pen of a random person. Jesus summons to you from his word. There's another pretty pressing application. When your elders or I speak about the potential of purchasing land in the future, I want to be very clear that neither I nor the elders are ever saying God has told us to buy this property. Instead, what we're saying is that we are praying and we are working to see if this is the spot that God intends to provide for our future buildings. We don't want to presume to know his hidden will. It would be wrong to attribute to the Lord with certainty. We know He's told us, follow us. And if you hear pastors or elders who lead you in the direction of things that are beyond his revealed will, beyond what's stated in the word of God, they're attributing to God words that advance a personal agenda. That is radically dangerous. We must honor God's name with all of life. The offense, the application, we're going to close with the warning. There are many ways, obviously, that you can take the Lord's name in vain. We haven't even really covered them all, and that's part of what's so terrifying. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then we come to this phrase, which is a warning. Verse 7b, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so the third commandment, like the second, provides this explanation. It's, It's a reason. And if you read it appropriately, you go, this is, a, this is a sober warning. God leaves in the text a, a, an answer which is incredibly vague. And he does so in order to drop the weight in our lap so that we recognize his name is so precious. As one scholar said, it is he who notes its misuse and matches the punishment to the crime in each and every case. That's actually terrifying. If God matches the punishment to the crime in each and every violation of this commandment and every other commandment, 
woe is me. I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. You dare not stand at Mount Sinai hoping to be just obedient enough. Just hoping to be generally accepted for being a good guy, a good girl. That's actually not how you get a relationship with God. And so if you hope to come to the living God to be spared from punishment entirely or at least partially based on some good works, you better be ready to do it perfectly. Not only with your heart, but also with your mouth. In your heart and in your mind. Many of the Jews of the Old Testament came to think that they could simply obey the third commandment by by saying God's name with a different pronunciation. Don't say Yahweh, say Jehovah. Ultimately, you will not be saved from violating the third commandment by avoiding taking God's name on your lips. You'll be saved from violating the third commandment by taking God's name into your heart. Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the name of the Lord? Lord Jesus, that's the name that Philippians 2 tells us is above every name. Because Jesus himself, by his obedience to the Father, even to the point of death, gives him this name Yahweh, and he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus the Christ is saved. God gives him the name Yahweh because he was and is Yahweh. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So God bestows his name on Jesus. Because Jesus is God. By faith in Christ, you carry a new name. You carry the name Christian. And in Christ, you have been cleansed and justified and sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The table that we will partake of in just a moment is set for those who bear the name of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word.